0: If you have your Bible, you can turn to the book of Mark, the gospel according to Mark in the fifth chapter. It was last Sunday morning, 8.30 a.m., we're getting ready for church, and talking about this Sunday, my wife asked me, do you know what you're going to preach next Sunday? And I said, yes, I think I'm going to preach from Mark chapter 5, 21 through the end of the chapter. And it wasn't... 15 minutes later that we got word that her aunt had passed away. Wednesday morning we get word of the loss of a dear friend. It's a reminder of our great need for Christ. There is no PowerPoint this morning. Surprise. There's no title for the sermon. If you take notes, the title I would give you is Christ, Our Only Hope. Robert Murray McChaney, and Brother Dan's not here. I don't see him, but if you're watching the live stream, this is for you, brother. He loves McChaney. Robert Murray McChaney said this, Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself Take ten looks at Christ. Let your soul be filled with a sense of the excellence of Christ. Let your soul be filled with a sense of the excellence of Christ. John Owen said this, A due contemplation of the glory of Christ will restore and compose the mind. It will lift the minds and the hearts of believers above all the troubles of this life. And is the sovereign antidote that will expel all the poison that is in them, which otherwise might perplex and enslave their soul. It's so important to know about Christian biography. McChaney, you could read that and think, wow, this, if you read much of his works, you would think, what a long seasoned ministry he must have had. And then to learn that he died at the age of 28. John Owen, you might be tempted to read of his dense prose and think, he was an ivory tower theologian, but then you would be surprised to know that he had numerous children and only one outlived him. He was well acquainted with grief, with hardship, suffering, and death. But these forebearers of ours said that what we need is to learn much of Christ, and that excellence of Christ, or as Owen said, a due contemplation of the glory of Christ will restore and compose the mind. It will lift the minds and hearts, not of unbelievers, but of believers, above all the troubles of this life. So this morning, my prayer, without a doubt, is that as we turn to Mark chapter 5, be filled with a sense of the excellence of Christ. Mark 5, if you have your Bible, turn there and we'll read from chapter 5, sorry, I meant to say verse, from verse 21 through the end of chapter 5, verse 43. This is God's word. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet. And he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had the discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard that reports about Jesus came up behind, she had heard reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They all came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw the commotion. The people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered the house, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is your grace to us. For we would know nothing of you if you were not to reveal it to us. And Father, if you were not to preserve it for us through the inspiration of those who penned these words, and Preserving it all the way to us today. That we could read and cherish it. Lord, we do pray that you would open our eyes and our ears this morning. That we would hear. It has already been prayed. Oh, Father, that your spirit would be at work mightily among us as we read. And look deeper into your word now. And that you would accomplish what you want to accomplish. And that maybe even this morning, Father, that those who are spiritually dead would come to life. And they would come to glory in Christ. And Father, for those who are in Christ, that you would once again set our hope and our eyes on Jesus, who is, in fact, our only hope. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. Now this, of course, is a quote from Lord of the Rings. Amen. And one of my favorite lines. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And really what we're seeing here in the Gospel of Mark up to this point is that the answer indeed is yes. And the great shadow of sin and death is beginning to be rolled back. We can go to the beginning of the Gospel and here's what we see. Mark loves this term immediately. It's a rapid pace moving Gospel as we go forward. You've seen the urgency that's in the text before us and you've seen the immediately, the immediately as the tempo has moved through. And when Mark begins his gospel, as he records the life and the ministry of Jesus, in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1, he says, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, gospel means good news, right? He's proclaiming the good news of God. And saying this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. So that's a summary of this gospel. This good news of God is that the time is at hand, the kingdom of God is at hand and repent and believe this good news. Now why is it that the kingdom is at hand? The kingdom is breaking in. It's breaking in because the king is here. The king is Jesus, and he has come, and with his coming, the kingdom is beginning to come with him. It's breaking into the present kingdom of the darkness that you and I are living in, and that you and I have ushered in through our own rebellion and our own sin against a holy, benevolent, loving God. And so this that has come upon us, the plight that has come upon us through our rebellion, there is a new age that is breaking in theologians, it's important, we'll return to this theme in a moment. We can call this the the overlap of the ages, right? So in Adam, the first Adam, sin came, and you and I are in Adam. By birth, right? We've joined the rebellion. But in the second Adam, the last Adam, Christ, a new age has come in. And there's an overlap of ages. And that's important. You need to understand that. Theologians call it the already and not yet as well that is coming with Christ. The kingdom is already broken in, but it's not yet fully realized until the second return of Christ right here, right? The second return. And then we will only know the fullness of God's kingdom through the reign of Christ Jesus. And we'll get there in a minute because, trust me, things just get better. And so as we think about this, this is Mark's gospel. And as he's moving through, what we see is that Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom with his words and he's showing the kingdom with his actions, right? His miracles and his actions are showing the reality of this kingdom, this good news that you and I need to repent Stop trying to be our own kings and bow before the king. Spoiler alert, Mark 10, who has come not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we are to bow before his king. And so that's the repenting and believing of the good news. And so in this, we are seeing in Christ's kingship that everything sad indeed is going to come untrue. And we see this as Jesus proclaims in chapter 1. And then we see the healing that begins with Peter's mother-in-law, I believe it was. And and from there we see healings. And then we see Christ saying, let's move on to the next place. Because I have, what, many things to proclaim. He's going to proclaim the kingdom. That's the driving force in the gospel, right? Because we need to hear the good news More than we need to see, but we're going to see both here in the Gospels. And so as we move forward, we see right away in Mark chapter 2, Jesus heals the paralytic. And within the healing of the paralytic, what he makes clear is that this healing is not just external, but it heals to the very core of who we are, right? He says, I can forgive sins. I have the power and the authority to forgive sins. Sins, And so now we're realizing who this one is, who has authority, that he is the second person of the Trinity. He is God the Son who has come to earth. And then we'll see that he'll heal uh, a paralytic. Later on, he heals a man with a withered hand. We see in Mark chapter 4, after he gives uh, the instructions of of the parable, and and he explains that, and the word that's going to go forth that's being proclaimed, uh, in that he'll calm the storm later, that even creation itself must obey him. That the second Adam has come, that first Adam forfeited, right, creation. He was supposed to have dominion over creation. He sinned and rebelled against God, and so death came as a result. Death is a curse, friends. And so the very thing that he was to have dominion over would have dominion over him as he was put into a grave, and the dust would be covered over himself but now Christ has come as the second Adam and he will show that even he has dominion over creation that even the waves of the sea will obey him and so we're seeing the beauty of Christ as we move through the gospel and there we get to the beginning of chapter 5 that we didn't read and he comes to the demonic and here we have one that is afflicted and that through that nothing on earth can contain him. They've tried to bind him with chains and they couldn't bind him with chains and and he's actually separated from community and he's living in a graveyard. It's a living death if you will. He's there in the land of the dead where they don't know what to do with this man and Jesus comes and he he heals him and he relieves him of this demonic oppression that he is facing and restores him back to community and back to uh, earthly relationships. And so yes, everything sad in fact is coming untrue. And here we come very to Mark chapter 5, and we'll see that not only does it go to the core of who we are and that Jesus addresses our sin issue, but he addresses the result of our sin issue, which is death itself, and that he will undo death. It's glorious good news. Brothers and sisters, just think about it for a moment. If you can tell me something better than this, I'd love to hear it. But you sit at a funeral and you tell me something that this world offers that can give you hope in that moment. There's no job, there's no strength, there's no bank account, there's no mental intellect, there's no fame that can help in that moment. This is why our culture is crushed when someone of celebrity dies, because we realize that not even that is the answer. All the best that the world has to offer. But the gospel good news is that even death itself is undone. All right, we got to get to the text. The stage is set. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. So I'll give you an outline if you want it. Verses 21 through 24 is traumatic urgency. Verses 25 through 34 is an unexpected delay. And verses 35 through 43 is fear and faith. So let's look at this traumatic urgency in verses 21 through 24. What we see is that after Jesus crosses the sea again, and the sea crossings are very important in Mark as well, but we don't have time to talk about those. And so as he crosses the sea, Again, he comes to the other side, and it says, one of the rulers of the synagogue. And so, so this man, Jairus, and I can never say his name right. I just want to call him Jairus, but Jairus. He, he comes, and, and, and this is a man of prominence, right? This is a man who has uh, resources at his disposal. This is a man who is a part of the religious construct of the day. And he comes to Jesus, and there's great urgency here. Look at what it says in verse 23. He implored him earnestly. I mean, there's sincerity here. He's at the end of his rope. He doesn't know what else to do. And just by the way, our suffering will often drive us to Christ. And, and so here he is in the midst of this moment where, where nothing is, is, is helping. So we're not even to the, she's not dead yet, right? But he knows that he is absolutely helpless. He goes to Christ with great earnesty, and this is what it says in verse 23, my little daughter is at the point of death. And the the Greek here literally is, she's got one foot across the threshold of death. I mean, she is any moment, any moment. And so here we see he comes and he, he implores him, and he says, come lay hands on her that she'll be made well and live. And so there's this traumatic urgency. And, and, and so here we go the best way I can try to describe this is it's like we're there in a moment and if you've ever been there and I hope most of you haven't but where there's this critical urgent health need that you know if help is not administered right away death will be the result and you're absolutely helpless and it's almost like we're jumping into the ambulance with a loved one and we're rushing to the hospital and seconds feel like hours do they not? And so here, we're on our way. Jesus is going to where the girl is. And what happens next is this unexpected delay in verses 25 through 34. And it says, the great crowd was following him. And Mark, he often writes of the crowd, almost in a menacing fashion. It's like pressing in on Jesus constantly. And so here in verse 25, it says, And there was a woman who had the discharge of blood for 12 years and had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better rather than worse. Friends, is that just not true still today with all of our medical advances and technology? Do we not still know many people who suffer the same plight as this woman? do we not, who, 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 who has suffered much with all kinds of ailments and illnesses and they spend all that they have and in the end they're no better but our medical uh, best advances, our best efforts medically still leave them in worse condition. Friends, there's so much that we could say about this little passage even to current issues today. With our neighbors who suffer many ailments And turn to modern medicine and are made worse rather than better. And that's not to say that modern medicine is bad. Don't hear me saying that. My kids, if one of them is sick tomorrow and ill, we'll go to the doctor. We're thankful for God's common grace in medicine. But what we're seeing here is, what we see everywhere is that the best we can do here is often not good enough. And that it can't be our ultimate hope. And so here's a woman who's suffered, and who's, had, who's had what the world has to offer, and it's still not enough. And here in verse 27, she'd heard reports of Christ. See, the suffering has driven her to Christ. And she thought, if I could just go and, and touch his garment. And so we, we see that she goes and she touches the garment. And there we see one of Mark's favorite words, verse 29, and immediately the flow of blood dried up. Immediately, she's, she's healed. We're seeing the undoing of, of sin and its effects, right? All suffering has come as a result of sin and our rebellion. And so here we're seeing this being undone. And what's amazing is, is that a woman in this condition, to touch a man, she would have made him unclean. Just as the, the leper who Jesus has already healed earlier, when he touched him, it would have made him unclean. But with Christ, what we're seeing is the reverse is actually the case. Instead of him being made unclean, he makes those who come to him and reach out to him clean. And so here, this woman who's reached out and touched his garment is made unclean. You've got to know, based on the crowd, that she's bumping into all kinds of people. And she's terrified when he turns around and say, who is this? Because she realizes, I've potentially made a lot of people unclean as I've tried to make my way through this crowd. And so here in verse 30, and Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him immediately turned about to the crowd and said, "Who touched me?" And you got to understand verse 31. I mean, don't forget what's going on here. We're talking about an unexpected delay. We're talking about a critical situation where a girl is on the brink of death and a chronic issue that is no little thing, but it is not as critical as this girl's about to die and Jesus is is stopping if you're Jairus, you're dying right now. And, 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 and so the disciples in verse 31, you've got to know they're thinking, are you serious? Like who touched you? There's people everywhere. And then look at verse 32, and he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling. There's the fear that we'll see. Present again in a moment. Mark contrasts fear and faith often in his gospel. She comes in fear and trembling. She fell down before him. She told him the whole truth. That's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of what repentance should look like. When we recognize our need for Christ we just throw ourselves down on, on his mercy at his feet and just tell the whole truth and speak of our great need before Christ. In verse 34, it's beautiful. And Jesus said to her, How dare you? Nope. What are you thinking? Nope. It's okay. Nope. It's even better than that daughter your faith has made you well you go in peace you be healed of your disease ah it's just just stop right there right but it gets better so we're not going to daughter your faith has made you well And then we really see the fear and faith theme elevate in verse 35. And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house one who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble to teach her any further? This is the word that J.R.S. does not want to hear. This desperation is suffering that has driven him to Christ. This desperation is suffering that has driven the woman with the issue of blood to Christ. Here, now we're at the point we were on, we were just at the end of the rope and now we've fallen off the rope. All hope's gone. This is it. It's it's over. Death is the end. Don't don't we know that and understand that? we grieve over the loved one. Don't, don't we it just feel so final, right? And we're helpless and there's nothing we can do about it. And, and so here we see this is what's happening. It says, just don't bother him. It's, it's too late. It's too late. Turn off the ambulance lights. Let's decrease our speed. And head to the morgue. Verse 36, but overhearing what they said... Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. You've got to know in that moment that this man, this father, is destroyed in the news. And Christ looks at him and says, you think all hope is lost. You think it's over. I'm telling you, Death does not get the last word. I do. I'm the Alpha and Omega. There's nothing that comes after me. And I'll get the last say on this matter. Friends, I think we need to stop for just a moment and think about this. This phrase of faith over fear has been really common this year. We've used it a lot, and we need to think well about it, and biblically, it's biblical. Here we have this, this, this contrast, right, even with the woman with the issue of blood, of fear and faith, and, 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 and have your faith be here, faith over fear, and here we have Jesus telling this man, do not fear, only believe. Believe. But I think the reason why we have to be careful is because we want to think well about this, and we want to think about it in biblical terms. Because I think when we hear fear and faith, we are tempted to hear it through the assumption of positive thinking, channeling Norman Vincent Peale via Robert Schuller and so on and so forth. That that it's almost as if we'll just if we'll just say, you know, I'll think this way, I'll think positively about this situation, about these issues, about these circumstances. I'm going to have faith. And we don't even know where we're putting our faith in. It's just kind of this this vacuous void that things will just work out and things will be all right. There is a danger within the church that has infiltrated the church where our world and our culture likes spiritual language like that. You can find all kinds of things in any store that say hope and believe and joy and love, biblical terms, but they're not meant the same way that the Bible speaks of them. And so what we need to understand is that when we're talking about faith, biblical faith is not generative. It means biblical faith does not generate something. as we believe something, we are not making it and believing it into existence and into being. That is not biblical faith. Biblical faith is responsive. Biblical faith is responding to the promises of God. Biblical faith is not generating something from the core of who we are, but it's And that's what Jesus is telling this woman I mean, this man right now. Believe, not just believe, believe in me. Trust me. Put your faith in me. Rest your hope in me, not in something else, not in in other things, but place your faith and place it squarely on me. One illustration I think is helpful in this way is something I read from Graham Goldsworthy years ago. And he says if you're driving on some back roads through, through a rural area, And he says, and it's raining really hard and the rivers and the the waterways are swelling and finally you wind your way through trying to make your way to your destination and you come to this old bridge and the water's swelling up. He said, the question in that moment is not do I have enough faith to drive across that bridge? That's absurdity. He says, the question in that moment is is that bridge worthy of my faith? So that drive across it. Brothers and sisters, all we have seen throughout the whole testimony of Scripture as we've studied Genesis together as a church over this last year is that God is absolutely trustworthy and worthy of our faith. We don't need to speak some sort of weird quasi-spirituality of, yeah, we believe. What we're saying is, no matter my circumstances, no matter my situations, I will trust the Lord. And that often we are perplexed. But as Apostle Paul says, we're not driven to despair. Because I can tell you right now, in this moment, Jairus is thinking, this is not how I wanted this to go. My daughter is dead. Jesus says, it's not the end. And you and I need to hear that. So Jesus is calling him, put your faith In me. The biblical faith is not, I'll trust God if he'll give me what I want. The biblical faith is not, the biblical faith is, I will trust God no matter what. The biblical faith is, Hebrews 11, 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen Brothers and sisters, we'll say it all the time that that we walk by faith and not by sight, but often the way we want to live is like, I want to live by sight. I'm not seeing what I want to see, but so often that's just not the case, is it not? We're walking by faith, not by sight. My life does not look the way I wanted it to look. I don't understand these circumstances. I don't understand these situations. But we know the king has come and he is coming again and he will set all things right and make all things new. That is walking by faith. I'm perplexed, God. I don't understand your plan. I don't understand why you have, have done things the way that you have done them. But I trust you will make all things right in the end. I love William Cooper's hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea, and he rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste. But sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is vain. Blind unbelief is sure to err and will scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. That's biblical faith. He is trustworthy. And our faith rests on him and him alone. And there is nothing else that can hold us up and sustain us. Jesus turns and he says, Do not fear, only believe. Verse 37. And he allowed no one to follow him except for Peter, James, and John, the brother of Jesus. they came to the house where the ruler of the synagogue was, and Jesus saw the commotion of the people weeping and wailing loudly. The funeral has already begun. That's what that means. Professional mourners are there. Verse 39, and when he heard this, when he, when he entered the house, and he said to them, why are you making this commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. They laughed at him. What's going on is they're saying, we know death. This is our business. Like, we're professional mourners, and this kid is dead. And they're laughing at him. Jesus' statement is meant to show that... that what you don't understand is that, yes, she's dead, but to me, death is like sleep. I'm about to wake this girl up. Now, I really want to know, and Mark doesn't tell us what it looked like that he did next, but he put them all outside. I just want to know what that looked like. I mean, was it just one look and they were all like, let's go? <laughs> Or did he say something? Or did he just, you know, like, I don't know. I want to know. I, 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 if, if the Lord allows, I'll ask when we get there. But I really want to know what that looked like. Because I know he didn't sin, but I know he got it done. You know what I'm saying? And so, so he put them all out. He put them all out. And he, and he walks over to where the child is, mom, dad, Peter, James, and John. And he takes her by the hand. Just like I would go into my daughter's room and almost just just like a dad would. Baby girl, get up. That's what he's doing. Talitha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, there's Mark's favorite word, death is undone. He speaks in listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. Just like Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. And just so you know, go to John 11. I I love John 11 as well, the the parallels. And, And just know that even in the midst of the suffering and the hardship, Jesus is not indifferent to that. That One of the most significant verses in all the Bible is the shortest verse in all the Bible. Jesus wept at the funeral of his friend. He knew what he was about to do. He knew that he was about to absolutely ruin that funeral, right? He I mean, knew that. He's like, this thing's about to change. But he still wept as he looked at death and saw as it's not, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Now, we come to the end of the passage and we see two really important things. And this comes from Tim Keller. This is how he describes it. But precisely because of the delay, both Jairus and the woman get far more than they asked for. See Jairus is thinking, "Come keep my daughter from dying." Jesus is saying, "I'm going to show you that I can do more than that. I can actually undo death itself." The woman is saying, "I just want to be healed." Jesus is saying, I'm going to show you I can do more than that. I'm going to call you daughter. I'm not just going to heal you. I'm going to bring you into the family. I'm going to make you mine. Return to the quote. They get far more than they ask for. Be aware that when you go to Jesus for help, you will both give to him and get from him far more than you bargained for. Friends, not only will we get more, but Christ requires all of us. And he says, I'm going to make you mine. See, this is the repent and believe the good news of the kingdom. Jesus requires all of us but he gives far more than we imagine. You think about the feeding of the multitude and the 12 baskets left over. What does that tell us? Jesus is always more than enough. Always. When we come to Christ, he calls for our all. This repent and believe the good news of the kingdom of God is that we, you and I repent of being our own kings. This is what's gotten us into the mess that we're in is that we have sought to be kings of our own lives, lords of our own lives, and set our own rules, our own agenda, and, and just make our own way. But friends, it has brought us nothing but sin, shame, pain, sorrow, ultimately death. And Christ has come as the King of kings and Lord of lords not to be served but to serve us and die for his enemies by living a perfect life, going to the cross and dying an atoning death, paying the price for our sin so that he would purchase us for himself. And on the third day himself, he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death. You've heard it said here. We can't say it enough. On that third day There was no more death left to be paid. Christ was victorious over sin and death. The wages of sin is death. Christ went and paid those wages in full. No more left to be paid. Drank the wrath of God completely for any who would come to Christ in faith and repentance in that he has paid our penalty and makes us sons and daughters of God. This is the good news. Friends, it gets better than that And that what we see here is that Christ's defeat of death is not him entering into death if we we were to view death as a tunnel and coming back out the entrance. We could say that about this little girl. Unfortunately, she had to die again. Lazarus, unfortunately, died again physically. Christ went into death and came out the other side victorious. And what that means is never to die again. And what 1 Corinthians 15 tells us is he is the first fruits. It means that in his death, planted as a seed, risen, resurrected, eternal king of glory, the first fruits, meaning he's the first, and a whole harvest is to come of those who belong to him. Then when Christ returns, remember what we said earlier about the overlap of the ages? His kingship will be known fully and finally. Now it's already begun. But it's not yet fully realized when Christ returns, we will know his kingship in full and it will be final. And on that day, all the dead in Christ will be raised and we will be with him and we will know the fullness of joy and we will be made new. There will be no more indwelling sin. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more death and he will wipe the tears from our faces. And on that day, all the blind will see, all the lame will walk, all the deaf will hear, all the hungry will be, hit, will be fed, and we will dwell in eternal bliss with our king. That will be a good day. That is biblical faith, is that we say that's the promise of God, and he cannot fail. He makes good on his promises every time, all the time. And we live in this life, in the time between the times until he returns, walking by faith and not by sight, that no matter the circumstances or situations we face, although often we'll be perplexed, we will not be driven to despair because our hope is secure and our hope is eternal and our hope is indestructible. You point me to a better hope and I'm all ears, but there's not one. It's Christ, Christ alone. He's our only hope. Brothers and sisters, it's my prayer that we would do what Robert Murray McCheney said, that we would learn much of Jesus. For every look you take at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Let your soul be filled with a sense of the excellence of Christ. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And let the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his beauty and grace. If you're here this morning and you've never looked at Christ as your Savior and King, it's of the utmost importance that you humble yourself, you throw yourself at the feet of Jesus on his mercy and grace, and he will call you son or daughter and make you his. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is indeed good. This morning, set our eyes on Christ. Let us delight in Him. And Father, we pray that as we go through this week, the coming days, we don't know what they hold for us, but you do. And in those dark moments, may faith not diminish, but may it drive us to Christ all the more. And may we delight in Him more and more. And may we walk by faith. For as the songwriter said, through many toils, dangers, and snares, I have already come. Your grace has brought us safe this far, and it is grace that will bring us all the way home. To you be the glory. Amen.